0: Like Sarah mentioned, we are in the middle of a series entitled 360 Stewardship and what we're doing throughout the series is looking at a number of different ways where we can manage the things that God has entrusted to us uh, for him. And so if you weren't here last weekend, like I was traveling, I was in the Twin Cities, and if you missed Pastor Randy's intro message, you can go to YouTube, our YouTube channel, and watch it. You can go to wherever you get podcasts and listen to it um, uh, a couple months ago, we started to get those smart radios in our car where I can plug in my phone and like listen to podcasts. I feel so important now, but uh, I'm listening to podcasts left and right when I never did before. So whatever way you might want to do that, if you want to catch up on maybe what we missed last week, we'd encourage you to do that. Uh, this weekend, uh, our focus is shifting towards how do we steward every concern for God? Uh, how do we manage every concern uh, one of those moments where we run into something that um, that just kind of like settles into the pit of our stomach, or causes us some anxiety, worry, fear, doubt, whatever it might be. How do we how do we use those moments uh, in a way that honors God and and actually helps us and those who are around us? Um, and what we're going to try to discover today as we look at a few passages of Scripture and, and wrestle with that is, is how every one of those, every concern, presents an opportunity for us as God's children uh, to learn a few things. Number one, His gracious providence. That is to say, He is sovereign and in control of all things and uses them for our good, ultimately. And secondly, how He will always and never fail to care for us. So to do that, I want to take you back to an Old Testament individual. His name is King Hezekiah. And you may or may not have heard of King Hezekiah, but he lived about 2,700 years ago, give or take. And his story is recorded for us in Scripture in 2 Kings, in a couple of chapters there, 18, 19, and 20. And then again in 2 Chronicles. Uh, chapters 29 through 32. And then he's he's also uh, part of the story of Isaiah. Um, and in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, it's a basically the same content with a few different emphases. Um, but I'd encourage you, if, you're, if, if your mind is kind of just tickled by this, to, to go back and read a little bit more of his story. What we know about him is he is the son of King Ahaz, who is one of the most notoriously bad evil and wicked kings in Judah. Um, Here's here's why I say this. Take a look at this uh, passage. It's from 2 Kings chapter 16. And in it, what we see is a summary of the life and the leadership of this uh, king Ahaz, who is again Hezekiah's father. It says, when he was 20 years old, he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God as his father David has done. I'm going to stop right there real quick, right? Every one of the kings of both Israel, the tribes to the north, and Judah, the two that were to the south in and around Jerusalem, uh, their whole life and their leadership is summarized in in this kind of phrase. They either walked in the footsteps of their father, uh, David, and they did right in the eyes of the Lord, or they walked in the footsteps of another king, an evil king, and they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So that's just kind of like a general single-sentence summary for the whole life. But in this case, they go a little deeper. Here's what they say. Uh, he, He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Now, Ahaz and then Hezekiah were kings in Judah. Again, the smaller kingdom to the south. Uh, in and around Jerusalem, uh, and the kings of Israel as a whole, um, there were a few exceptions, but as a whole, they were, uh, they were quick to give up worshiping God. They were quick to adopt the evil practices of their pagan neighbors, and, and they were generally bad kings, right? So to say he walked in the footsteps of those guys is not a good thing, but, but then take a look at what's in bold next. It, it kind of encapsulates How far astray Ahaz had gone. It says, He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. What you may not remember or know, at least offhand, is that in and around Israel, there were pagan religious cults that did all sorts of terrible things. And, and they would often demand ritual sacrifice of human beings for the pleasure of the gods. So, for example, there was one god, his name was Pan. He was in the, in the Greek pantheon. And, and in and around uh, Caesarea Philippi, there was a spring that came out of a cave on the side of a wall. And it was known as the Gates of Hades. You may remember Jesus took his disciples in there and he said um, that I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades are not going to overcome it, right? Um, what, what would happen in that cave is that the parents who wanted the favor of that god, they were expected to take a child and throw the child into the spring in the mouth of that cave. And if the, if the child washed up and ran downstream, it meant that it wasn't accepted. But if the child was never to be seen again, it meant that the god favored them and maybe they would have more kids or maybe their crops would grow that year. That's just one example. There were others who would be expected to lay out their children to be exposed to the elements and to the wild creatures of the land. And Molech, one of the worst of the worst of these pagan gods, actually demanded child sacrifice, that you would kill and even burn your children. And so what we see here is that this king of Judah, who was supposed to be following the ways of God, was doing the exact opposite. And he would even go so far as to offer his child as a sacrifice. Now now this is the father of the guy that we're going to look at today, this guy named Hezekiah, about as bad as you could get, and then contrast that to pretty good, not perfect, but pretty good. Right? Here's what we know about Hezekiah. He, he reigned for about 29 years, starting when he was 25, which when I was reading that and getting ready for this message, it struck me because when I was first sent here to St. Peter, I was 25 years old. So, young guy, still figuring out life, trying to figure out how to lead. I can relate to that. right? But he reigned for 29 years, and he was devoted to the Lord, and he was faithful in prayer. If you read any of those chapters I showed you earlier that are on the top of the list, you'll see that. Okay? Uh, he also, unlike his father, rooted out and sought to eliminate all of these pagan worship practices, destroying their altars, uh, chopping down all of the poles that they would erect in parts of worship, and, and trying to uh, kick it out of the land. He was also accomplished in battle and, and expanding the city of Jerusalem after Israel, the northern ten tribes, fall to the Assyrians in 720 BC. Okay? Okay. Now, now here's the summary, or at least one of them, of Hezekiah. Uh, It said, He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, either after him nor among those who were before him. That's a pretty strong statement, because probably with the exceptions of David and Solomon, the first two kings, um, this is saying that Hezekiah was maybe the best from among all of the rest. Right? Not perfect, but, but he did his best to follow God's will and to, and to lead his, uh, his people in the same way. For why? Well, for he held fast to the Lord and did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments the Lord had commanded Moses. He stayed rooted in God's word. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out, and wherever he went, he prospered. Now, one of the things I mentioned there is this prospering led to an expansion of the city of Jerusalem. Here's a depiction Uh, of what it may have looked like in that time, in particular with regard to what's known as Hezekiah's Tunnel. A fascinating engineering feat. You see, what had happened is a whole bunch of, uh, of exiles from the northern kingdoms came down to Jerusalem to live there with uh, the people of Judah after the nation fell to Assyria. So he had to ex- expand the city, and as part of that, he built a, uh, a tunnel about a third of a mile long to connect a spring to a pool of water so that they'd have their own secure source of water within the city, and, 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 the, and the Assyrians wouldn't be able to use that against them. Uh, what's interesting is uh, about one-third of a mile and those of you who do engineering or math they had about 12 inches of slope to work with right from one end to another so not very much right And what they did is they started digging from the two ends of the tunnel, and over a series of years, they eventually met in the middle. And here's what that tunnel kind of looks like. I had a chance to go there uh, with some friends from St. Peter about 10 years ago. I did not take this picture, FYI. I looked for one of our own, but the lighting was so bad, like there's nothing worth showing. So I just grabbed this one off the internet. But you can imagine like this dark, narrow, damp tunnel. And so they had all these uh, miners working their way through to the end, And and exactly in the middle, uh, there is an inscription that's still there to this day. This is actually a replica of it. Don't worry, you can't read it. It's in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. Here's what it says. Uh, The miners, uh, and this is around 700 BC, the miners, they were working their way into the middle. And when they were just a few meters apart, they could hear each other. And they kept pressing through. And then they finally broke through and the water flowed. Right? And it was carved into the rock wall right in the middle of Hezekiah's tunnel. And if you crawl all the way through there, uh, you can have a chance to see this replica that's left still in place right there. I tell you that because it's, it's about exactly at that time when that breakthrough is happening that this event in the story of Hezekiah recorded in Isaiah happens. And, and here's what happens. Here's this moment of crisis or concern. It says, In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Now, as best as we can tell, when Hezekiah got this word, he was about 39, 40 years old, maybe. And uh, again, that stands out for me because I just turned 40 a few weeks ago. And so I'm like, uh, what would it be like for someone uh, who otherwise should be in their prime of their life to get sick? And he had some sort of infection, a boil that apparently was toxic. And and when he apparently had asked God about it um, and Isaiah came to tell him what God had to say, God said, I'm sorry, this is fatal. You're not going to survive this. Go sort out your stuff because the end is coming. Some of you have sat in a hospital room and, and had a doctor or someone else come and tell you news like this. Or maybe you've been on the phone and you heard from your family or friends about uh, the terminal cancer that someone you love has. Or maybe you've been on the other end of the phone, or maybe it's been a police officer showing up at your home to tell you that a loved one has died suddenly in a car accident or has lost their lives serving our country in war. Or maybe for you, the moment wasn't nearly that dramatic. Maybe it was a job loss. Uh, Maybe it was a workplace conflict or maybe it's a student at your school that always picks and picks and picks and picks on you and makes going to school miserable. Maybe it's a neighbor that you just can't get along with. And every time you see, your anxiety level shoots to the roof and you get this uh, churn in the pit of your stomach. Right, I'm hoping at least one of those is something you can grab a hold of because I want you to be thinking about those moments in your life where it seems like there is no way out. Where it seems like you've done your best, you've tried everything you could come up with, and still it seems like God is saying, no, not going to happen, Done. That's the kind of moment that Hezekiah was in, and maybe you've had a moment like that. I know I have uh, a few times in my life, and I can tell you, they're terrible. They're the worst. And, and they just cause me to stay up late at night, and I can't go to sleep. They, I, I carry them around with me all throughout the day, and it is just hard. What do we do when we are faced with a moment like that where God seems to be saying, no, I'm not going to fix this for you. This is it. It's done. For Hezekiah, uh, he had a prophet in the room with him and, uh, and so um, he had this word from God and his immediate response was this. He turned his face to the wall and he prayed to God. He prayed to the Lord and he said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And then he wept bitterly. Hezekiah, as best we can tell, was faithful to God, knew God's word, And as a result, knew that his standing with God was not established on his performance record. That is to say, God's good graces and his provision was not the result of Hezekiah being good enough and doing all the right things. Um, and and for those of us who know the rest of Scripture, and especially the New Testament, we know that there's nothing we can do to earn or deserve God's favor. He, he simply gives it to us. And um, even on our best days, we're still messed up. We're still broken. And so even if we were to try to impress God, we'd still come up short. So so when I read what Hezekiah says here, I, I don't read Hezekiah saying, God... Um, I've been so good, you have to do this thing for me. Right? I, don't, I don't see God or Hezekiah saying that. What I see Hezekiah doing is crying out to his father, who has provided for him throughout all of his life, who has been faithful to him, and, and has worked in Hezekiah um, faithfulness um, that looks a lot like the faithfulness of God. I see him just crying out to his Father and then weeping. Sometimes those moments we go through, those moments of crisis or concern or loss, they leave us with nothing else to say, don't they? Um, Especially when that moment of conflict or crisis is close to our heart and our home. Those of you who have gone through struggles in your marriage, or um, those of you who are estranged from your children or your parents or your extended family, those of you who have people at work that you just can't seem to get along with, even those of you in a church community who sometimes have found yourself just at odds with people that should be like kind and loving and gracious to you, Those are the ones, at least for me, that just dig down deep and and leave me sometimes in tears. And and I don't want to get into it too much today, but some of you in the room and some of you at home know that here at St. Peter, we've gone through a few of those times over those years. And in parts of St. Peter now, there's some struggle going on, and it's not easy, and it's not fun. And it leaves us wrecked, and frustrated and afraid and broken. And, and here's what it leaves us, that. And this is where I think Hezekiah was. He was at the end of himself. Uh, he knew that there was no way he could get out of this spot. He couldn't uh, call in another prophet. He couldn't uh, try another cure. He was helpless, powerless, and hopeless except for crying out to the God who loved him, who knew him by name, and had never failed to supply all of his needs. Here's what I've learned. Sometimes God needs to bring us down, down, down to the end of ourselves, to that point of helplessness and hopelessness for his word to finally break through and provide the transformation we need. And (laughs) here's the thing. It's not fun to be in that place. It's not easy. Um, It's hard and it hurts. But let me tell you this. When like Hezekiah, you're left helpless and hopeless on your own and entirely dependent on God, then he will never fail to meet you in that place and do what only he can do. Here's what happened next for Hezekiah. The following verses tell us that the word of the Lord then came to Hezekiah. And I don't know if it was immediately on the spot or if it was a few days later, I don't know. Um, But it said, go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of your father, I have heard your prayer I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you in this city from the hands of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. When Hezekiah was at his lowest, when he was empty and helpless and hopeless on his own, uh, I want you to notice what God said. I hear you and I see you. Now, what he also went on to say is, I'm going to answer your prayer, and I'm going to give you another 15 years. And honestly, I don't know what it would be like to know exactly how many years I have left before I die. I think I would kind of like it, but then not at the same time, right? Because after that, you'd be like, well, I know I'm not going to like fall down this pit and die so I can try to jump across it, right? Or I know that I could go into this battle and I'm going to come out alive because God said 15 and it's only been 12. But can you imagine what it would be like in like year 13 and 14 and then in 15? It'd be like one of these days, I don't know when, like it's going to be done. But um, so I'm not sure how good that would be to know. But what we all know is that our days are numbered. Maybe graciously we don't know the number of them, but God does. And we know that someday he will invite us into heavenly rest with him and our time here on earth will be done. But what I do know for sure is that in our moments of brokenness and desperation, God says, I hear you. And I see you. And that, my friends, is exactly what we need. So from the life of Hezekiah, um, what can we learn? Well, first and foremost, remember I said he rooted out false worship of the pagan gods. Uh, And I would say for you, if if you're going to like hit your wagon on something, what can I do next? It would be one of these three things or maybe a few of them. Number one, devoting yourself to regular worship. That means weekly gathering, whether at home or whether in a room like this. It also means more than that. And what I've found is that daily worship for me is often driven by music that speaks to my soul. And for some of you, that's going to be like a Bach cantata and others of you, it's going to be like Christian heavy metal or something in between. I don't know. Right, And that's okay because there's value for all of them as long as it brings you closer to God. What I've found is that when I'm at my lowest, God uses music to speak to my soul in ways that are powerful. And so my family can attest to this. It, I just have music going kind of constantly. And it's annoying for some people, but it's, it's, it's life-giving for me. The second thing would be spending more time in God's Word. And the third thing would be Praying and then continuing to pray. And as and our family verse of the week here at St. Peter last week was, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Here's the thing. We see this in the Bible, not just in the story of Hezekiah, but also and especially in the story of Jesus. You may remember right before he was arrested, tried, and crucified, he spent hours and all night in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, pouring his very soul out to God. But that wasn't a one-time event either. He did it frequently. Whenever he was about to make a major decision or advance something in his mission, he would spend time with God in prayer. And so Luke chapter 6 tells us this. In those days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And notice this all night he continued in prayer to God. And we don't know exactly what he prayed throughout the hours of the night or how long that night was, but it's interesting. What we're told is he did this right before choosing the 12 who would be his apostles. Out of all his disciples, who would be the ones that represent him? And, and maybe he spent an hour on each. Peter, the leader among leaders, who would rise to some of the highest highs and fall to some of the lowest lows. Maybe he spent an hour on Peter alone. I don't know. Or James and John, who were a little bigger than their britches, and they wanted to be like the first guys at his right and his left, and Jesus was like, you guys are important, but, but, but you got to serve. Or maybe as you look through that list, your eyes wander down to the bottom, and you see the one in bold, Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray him. Did he spend half of the night just wrestling with God, saying, God, why are you inviting me to bring a betrayer? into my circle of closest friends. I don't know what Jesus prayed specifically, but I know he was praying about this. And I know also one more thing. Jesus, even though he was God and even though he had direct access to knowledge that only God could, spent time with his Father in prayer. He devoted himself to the Word of God and he was faithful in worship as well. And so my friends, these three things I would invite you to consider too. How can you, in the course of your everyday life, as you get to those low, low points and you find yourself empty uh, of options and at the end of yourself, how can you learn to steward and manage those in a way that serve you and others and honors God? It would be starting with one of these three things. So for our here in practice uh, questions, here's what I want you to do. And music team, if you want to come up and get ready for our next song, you can do that. I want you to be reflecting on these three And if you're by yourself, just think about this on your own. If you're with someone, I invite you to share with them. Which of these three do you feel God's calling you to press into next? Right? Is it more regular worship? Is it more consistent time reading God's word? Is it more time in prayer? Odds are he's going to nudge you to one of those three. So which of those three is God calling you to lean into next? And then secondly, what's one thing you can do to move that forward? Right? So pick one of these three. Um, what's God calling to you and what's one thing you can do to move that forward. Think about that if you're on your own. Share it with someone if you're with someone and then we're going to sing some worship music to kind of move forward with the service.